0: was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them and the Lord said to Satan from where do you come so Satan answered the Lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it then the Lord said to Satan Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said... The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you, while he was still speaking... Another also came and said. Your sons and your daughters. Were eating and drinking wine. In their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind. Came from across the wilderness. And struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose. And tore his robe. Shaved his head. And fell to the ground. And worshipped. And he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return there. The Lord gave. And the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this. Job did not sin. Nor charge God. God with wrong. In our introduction to Job, we looked at his life, we looked at his character, we looked at his fortune, we looked at his faith. We're told that Job was blameless and upright, and that he feared God, and that he shunned evil. He had a large family and enormous wealth. He was A spiritual leader and devoted father offering sacrifices for his family and cleansing. And now his ideal and prosperous life will be dramatically and terribly disrupted. Job will become the object of Satan's attack and he will experience horrible suffering. We're introduced to Job's accuser and attacker, Satan, in verses 6 through 12. We are encouraged by Job's faithfulness despite the heart-breaking catastrophic loss described in verses 13 through 22. Job's enemy and relentless attacker will continue the assault in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And we see Job's faithfulness and perseverance despite suffering and rejection. In his book, Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey writes, it helps to think of the book of Job as a mystery play, a whodunit, a detective story. Before the play begins, we, the audience, get a sneak preview As if we showed up early for a press conference in which the director explains his work in chapters 1 and 2. He relates the plot, describes the main characters, then tells us in advance who did what in the play and why. In fact, he solves every mystery in the play except one. How will the main character respond? Will Job trust God? Or deny him. He continues quote. We know the answer to the whodunit questions. But the star detective Job. Doesn't. He spends all of his time on stage. Trying to discover what we already know. He scratches himself with shards of pottery. And asks why me? What did I do wrong? What is God trying to tell me? Why is Job suffering? Not for punishment. Far from it. He's been selected as the principal player in a great contest of the heavens, unquote. And when you read, I'm sure like me, you said, I hope I never get to be a part of that kind of cosmic wager. But I'm here to tell you something. That Job's life, circumstances, questions, and answers are played out each and every moment of each and every day. And if we had the opportunity to go around the room, each and every one of you could speak of a time when a dramatic, crushing, catastrophe Caused you to reconsider everything. Look at the reason for his trial. We begin in verse 6. Look what it says. Now there was a day when the sons of God, Ben Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The origin of Job's trials lie in heaven, and Job has no idea. The book of Job records a series of confrontations and accusations that result in Job's trials. Here in verses 6 through 12. Later in chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. And when you look at the passage automatically all kinds of questions spring to your head. Well there was a day when the sons of God. Who are they? Ben Elohim. It is translated the sons of God. But almost always in the passage of Scripture, it's a reference to supernatural beings, angelic beings. It's translated that way in Genesis chapter 6, verses 2, and then verses 4. In Job chapter 2, verse 1, we see it again the sons of God. And Ben Elohim always refers to someone. Who has God as their father. Let me see if I can make this clear to you. In the Bible, angels are called the sons of God. Why? Because they have no paternity. All angels exist as a part of a divine creation. All angels, according to the Bible, were created at a particular time, in a particular place, and in a particular number. And so they're called the sons of God. Who else is called the sons of God in the Bible? Adam. Adam is called the Elohim Because he has no paternity. Jesus is called Elohim In the sense of he is the son of God. The Greek is huoyo, tau, thea. The Septuagint um, translates it that way. So angels are sons of God. Adam is the son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. But guess what? Every single person who's been born again by the Holy Spirit, who's been born from on high in a supernatural act of something that didn't exist, but now exists, are called the sons of God. That's what it means in John chapter 1 when it says, And to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God. So it says, now there was a day when the sons of God, angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. And right away you're deeply disturbed because you know that no ugly thing, no foul thing, no wicked thing can be in heaven. And so how do you explain his, his very presence there? And then you're wondering, is it, can it still happen? Before we answer those questions, let's look at the principles. The name Satan means accuser. It also can mean to act as an adversary. In the Greek language, it translates to the Greek word diabolos. Diabolos is a word that means to accuse or the accuser. The Bible teaches that there is a real accuser. The Bible doesn't simply paint a portrait of Satan as a literary device or a metaphorical vehicle to further the story's narrative. And I think that if you were to take a survey among people and you were to ask them the question, do you believe in a devil? The vast majority of people would say, I don't believe that there is such a thing. The unbeliever sees devils and demons as mythical, invisible forces conjured up by our ignorant ancestors in a vain attempt to explain our world. The world is content to laugh at the medieval caricature of Satan as a misguided angel who lost his way, or like modern Satanists who see in Satan not so much a person as a force, That denies God and explains and justifies a life apart from God. And so if people ask me, do you believe in the devil? I say, I do not believe in the devil that is the caricature of the culture as he's represented in our culture. You know what else I don't believe in? I don't believe in a devil that is given more power... Then the Bible identifies, but I believe in a real devil, as he's described in the Bible, with all of the attributes that the Bible give him, with all of the powers and deceitfulness that the Bible ascribes to him. Both the Bible and Jesus speak of a real devil, a real Satan. He's described as an angelic being in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13. He's described as being adorned with precious stones possessing great musical ability, wisdom and beauty, he fell according to Ezekiel 28:17 because of his pride. He possesses intelligence according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3. He has will, desire. He is called Satan, the great dragon. The prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, the king of death, the ruler of darkness, the deceiver, the wicked one, the tempter, the accuser of the brethren, a murderer, a roaring lion, it says in First Peter chapter 5 verse 8. Here in Job and elsewhere in chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. He is presented in the Bible as a person who presents himself to God and accuses the brethren. He is described as walking to and fro on the earth in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And so, the text prompts more questions. Well, why would God allow Satan to access heaven and heaven's throne? Does God still grant Satan access? Well, If you want the answer to those questions, go to gotquestions.org. But if you don't want to go to gotquestions.org and you want an answer right now, In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, many of you are familiar with the passage of Scripture where Jesus says to Peter that before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter adamantly, vehemently says he will never betray Jesus. He will never deny Jesus. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. Does that sound like someone who still has the ability to communicate with God his evil and wicked desires? I think that the answer is yes. By the way, for those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you know how that ends. Peter says, you said no, right? No, that's actually not what the text says. That's, that's what I would want to say. If, if the Lord spoke to me, Gino, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, I would, you, you turn into a, a, a puddle. And you go, no. Tell him no. In verse 7 it says, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro from the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Now again, for the person who's troubled, when they say, And the Lord said, From where do you come? Does this mean that God didn't know where he came from? By the way, whenever you see God asking a question in the Bible, it isn't because he doesn't know the answer to the question. It's because he's giving the person, whether it's Adam, Eve, or Satan, an opportunity to explain themselves. And so when he says, going to and fro from on the earth and from walking back and forth on it, does that leave you with the impression that a very real Satan is able to penetrate this atmosphere and walk in the circumstances that we call the planet earth? The answer is yes. Yes. and then in verse 8 it says then the lord said to satan have you considered my servant job that there's none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man one who fears god and shuns evil the lord invites satan to consider job he holds satan or he holds job out as a paragon of virtue he is the finest man on the earth. He is the most interesting man in the world. This is way before those equis was ever invented. He describes him as a man with complete integrity. He describes him as one who fears God and refuses evil. But I want to draw your attention to a specific thing in the text. Look what it says. Have you considered my servant? Do you realize that that's a stingy title that God doesn't give to very many people? The Bible refers to a number of people or groups as God's servants. Abraham is called God's servant in Genesis 26-24. Moses is called God's servant in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. And he even promises Joshua... That he calls him his servant. Caleb is called his servant in Numbers 14.24. David is called his servant in 2 Samuel 3.18. Isaiah is called his servant in Isaiah chapter 20 verse 3. Eliakim is called his servant in Isaiah 22.20. The whole nation of Israel is described as God's servant in Isaiah 41.8. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is called God's servant in Jeremiah 259 Zerubbabel is called God's servant in Haggai chapter 2 verse 23 the branch in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8 is described as his servant it's a messianic title that alludes to the coming messiah and Job and Job is called his servant here And again in chapter 2, verse 3, again Chuck Swindoll points out, he says, quote, Every time God calls someone my servant, he illustrates the intimate spiritual relationship that he has with that person. This title also indicates submission and a willingness to be used by God according to God's plans and purposes, unquote. And it's interesting to me that in John chapter 15, verse 15, remember as Jesus gathers his disciples together, he says, from now on I call you not servants. For the servant doesn't know what his Lord does, but I've called you my friends. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Servant is an awesome title in relationship to God. But friend is an even more awesome title. The reason why I bring this up is because I wanted to bring it to your attention. I wanted to invite you to ask yourself a question Would you describe yourself as God's servant? perhaps even as his friend. And if you are in fact God's servant, and if you are in fact God's friend, then it should prompt you once again to cause you to ask and answer the question, as God's servant and as God's friend, does God have the right to ask of you of things? To go to the left or to go to the right. To go forward or to stay back. To give or not give. What about you? Now think about that as we continue in the text. Look at verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? Around his household. And around all that he has. On every side. You have blessed the work of his hands. And his possessions. And you've increased in the land. There's several things that I want to bring to your attention. First of all. The word of God. The word of God. As God speaks. And he says have you considered. My servant Job. It shouldn't surprise you that Satan rejects God's word. God speaks. Satan rejects God's word. God says something. Satan doesn't agree. God says something about himself, and God says something about you, and God says something about your circumstances, and God speaks, and Satan rejects God's word. That shouldn't surprise you. Satan challenges God's word. That doesn't surprise you either. Satan accuses Job. I have to ask you a question. Does that surprise you? Maybe. Maybe not. Satan suggests that Job... is really a hypocrite. That Satan suggests that Job so-called integrity and his so-called sincerity isn't based because he's really a person of integrity or a person of sincerity, but that he's a hypocrite, that he's a liar, that he is fake, not real. And Satan suggests That Job would curse God if God would simply drop the hedge of protection. Do you ever wonder if Satan accuses you before God of hypocrisy, of insincerity? I want you to think just for a moment because out of all of the people on the planet earth, God draws attention to Job. But of all the people on the earth, what do you think is the likelihood that he would draw attention to you or to me? Because the truth is that most human beings do not rise to the level that is described of Job or the qualities that are given to Job. God doesn't dispute that a hedge has been placed around Job. Now this is interesting. Because I'm going to suggest to you that the Lord has placed a hedge of blessing around Job. But I'm also going to suggest to you that the Lord has placed a hedge of blessing, a fence of unfailing blessing around each and every believer. Does that shock you? That a real God up in heaven has placed a protective shield to the north, the south, the east, and the west of you. That God has blessed you. That God has given you a pledge of forgiveness in Isaiah chapter 44 verse 22. An assurance of salvation if you know and love Jesus in John chapter 5 verse 24. Comfort for your lives according to Isaiah 41 10. This joy, the peace and All of the things, all of the promises, every single promise that has been given to you. I can't help but think of Romans, which I've been thinking about a lot. In chapter 15, verses... 4 and 13 where it says for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Verse 13 now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has placed a hedge of blessing and protection around you. But even with that hedge of protection, a protection of being chosen, of being adopted, of being accepted, there's still a supernatural, an invisible war that is being waged all around you. And sometimes you sense it, and sometimes you don't. Because I'm going to suggest to you that the charges, the accusations that Satan makes against Job are made against you and me. In a far more powerful and a far more persuasive way. Because the truth is, each and every one of us is less than perfect. The only reason Job loves God, according to Satan, and serves God, according to Satan, and fears God, according to Satan, is because God's been good to him. Can you imagine Satan saying, you know, you've been really, really good to that guy. You've been really, really good to that gal. You have been so generous, so gracious, so awesome in your love and your grace and your mercy and look at what it says in verse 11 but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face this has been called by the way satan's wager and i'm sure it's a wager you hope that you never have to be involved in And look what it says in verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Apparently the Lord gives Satan permission to rob Job of his possessions. To refrain from harming Job's person. I'm going to ask you another question. Why do you think the Lord accepted Satan's wager? I want you to think about that for just a moment. In your mind, a wager is given, a wager is made. Why do you suppose the Lord accepted Satan's wager? Why does God allow Satan to test Job? Clearly God is going to allow a cosmic drama to unfold. Now, a lot of thoughts might be stirring in your brain right at this very moment as, you be go- as you're going down the laundry list. Well, why did he? Wh- how am I supposed to answer that question? Would you like me to give you a, a little hint on how to think your way through that question? He goes, yes, I do want a hint. Okay, I'm going to give it to you. In order to answer the question, why does God allow Satan to test Job? There's two other questions you need to ask and come up with an answer for. Why did God allow Satan to test Jesus? And why does God allow Satan to test you and me? By the way, if you do a careful study, ask and answer the question, Why does God allow Satan to test Jesus? And why does God allow Satan to test you and me? All of a sudden, you're going to be able to start to unfold the puzzle of this incredible cosmic drama. Does God's word play a part? Yes. Does Job's faithfulness play a part? Yes. When Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, is it in the hopes that Jesus will fail? Yes. Will Jesus fail? No, he won't fail. But in Satan's misguided way of thinking, is he holding out the hope that such a man as Job will fail? That somehow someone can't have that kind of integrity. Someone can't have that kind of sincerity. And so the record of his trial begins. We're going to go quickly. Look what it says. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you, take a breath. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell down from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you, take a breath. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you, take a breath. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind from across the wilderness And struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. I want you to imagine just for a moment the picture. I want you to go back in time and space. Remember the idyllic life that Job, his wife, his children were living. Job has been listening to the news in utter shock. I read a note from a Bible writer who said, Two of the four tragedies were man-made. That is, they came from the hands of evil men the marauding Sabians and the Chaldeans. On the other hand, two tragedies were the result of natural disasters, the destructive destructive fire and windstorm. From a human standpoint, each of the tragedies might have seemed like a worldly phenomenon, just plain bad luck. But Job does not interpret them this way. He knew that God Permitted them. All these tragic events played out on the earth. They had their roots and their driving force in the spiritual world. Unquote. This is important part. Two man-made. Two what you might call natural disasters. Pain upon pain. Heartache upon heartache. Now again, when it talks about the loss of the camels and the donkeys and the sheep, you might just look at that and go, oh, the the camels are gone. Oh, the donkeys are gone. Oh, the sheep are gone. But there's something way more that's gone. For the careful reader, for the thoughtful person who's looking at the text, they know that Job's livelihood is gone because with With the absence of the camels and the sheep and with the absence of the donkeys. Remember, this is a financial collapse of catastrophic circumstances. And you've also got to understand something. Job has diversified his portfolio. I'm going to put some of my assets in this particular group. I'm going to put other assets in that particular group. What are the chances... Of two wars and two freak weather phenomenon completely wiping out everything. But that's exactly what happens. The economic loss was grave. But how do you deal with the emotional loss of your children? You hear this. You hear the injury. You begin to process the emotional loss of your children How do you do that? In order for us to talk about that, let's look and see what Job himself did in verse 20. Look what it says, then Job arose. The picture is, he's been sitting down. You've watched it. The first person has run in. His eyes get wide and his mouth opens. His heart begins to beat. The second person rushes in. The third person rushes in. The fourth person rushes in. They're talking over each other. He gets up. He tears his robe. He shaves his head. He falls to the ground. And he worships. In the ancient world in which Job lives, tearing your robe and shaving your head falls into the, the ancient pattern of, of a physical expression of deep grief and personal trauma in the ancient world when your heart was broken and when every pore in your body is open and your, the molecules in your body are screaming in grief and in trauma, you would tear your clothes, you would shave your head, Job is reduced to a quivering pile of brokenness and grief. But here's something important. Even as we look at what's happening. Grief isn't a sin. Grief is overwhelming sadness. Grief is an overwhelming loss. But it's not a sin. Jesus said something remarkable in Matthew chapter 5 verse 4. He said, happy are those who mourn. For God will comfort them, but it doesn't feel that way when the news comes that your mother or your father or your brother or your sister or your son or your daughter is dead. Sometimes grief has unexpected and unpleasant side effects. C.S. Lewis described it as someone taking a club and hitting you on the head and you feel like you're going to black out. In Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 45, as Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane, as he's considering the horror and the trauma that he's about to face as he's going to the cross of Calvary, he comes to the disciples in order to find some comfort and companionship. It says when he was overwhelmed with sorrow and dread over the coming crucifixion, it says in Luke twenty-two forty-five, 45, when he, that is Jesus, got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them Sleeping, but it adds because of grief. It's that kind of pressure where your energy is gone and you have no idea what you're going to do. Some of you have been in circumstances where you've received bad news and you've had to give bad news. Which do you think is more difficult? Hearing the news or giving the news? I've done both. I thought about it. Hearing your father is dead or hearing your friend is dead or hearing some terrible, horrible thing has happened, that is very, very difficult. But I think the most difficult thing that I've ever had to do was tell a woman and her two young children that their father was never going to come home. She and her husband had come into my office and there was terrible problems in their marriage and there was terrible circumstances in their marriage and things were going from bad to worse and the husband said that he was going to commit suicide. And one of two things was really true. He was going to commit suicide, and he really meant it. And by the way, if that's true, do you have a real problem on your hands? Yes. If the person's not really wanting to commit suicide, but they're using the suicide card in order to manipulate a person emotionally, does that mean that there's a problem? Yes. So when a person says, I'm going to kill themselves," whether it's real or not real, Do you have to take it seriously? Yes, that's the right answer. And I told him so. That you have a real problem, but there's real help and there's a real solution. That there's a God who loves you and cares about you. He got up from the chair. He walked out of my office. And three days later, local police... Officers found his swollen body dead. It had already started to decompose. And the officers came to me and brought me to her and gave her the bad news that her husband was dead. And she looked at me, and she started to shake, and she started to quiver, and she looked at me with pleading eyes, and she said, you're going to have to tell my girls. You have to tell my girls. I can't do it. I can't tell them. I can't tell them. And so the hardest, the most difficult thing that I have ever had to do was take a six-year-old child and a four-year-old child and get down on my knees and tell them that their father was never, ever going to come home ever again. How do you do that? Grief will plow the heart Deeply, But the Bible says that God will allow losses in our life. And Job expresses his intense grief. But what Job does next isn't customary and it's never expected. When Job receives word of what has happened, he worships and prays and he trusts God to strengthen him. And bear him in the utter heartbreak. Most people could never do that. And he said, naked I came into my mother's womb. Came from my mother's womb. Naked I'll return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In a single sentence. Job declares two immutable truths that you can't take your possessions and your wealth with you into the next world. The second, that God, God, God is in control of your life. God is in control from the moment that you're born and every moment of every day and every week and every month and every year, Job acknowledges that God is the source of his possessions, the source of his blessing, that everything comes from his hand. And since God is the source and the giver, God reserves the right to be the taker away. And because God has the right to give, and because God has the right to take away, in a single profound moment, he makes the statement. But I'm going to suggest to you that not even for a moment does the grief go away, or the horror go away, or the trauma goes away, but Job worships. Now I want you to understand when it says that he worships, it it isn't just simply that he bows his head and he has some some philosophical or religious thoughts about God. I'm going to suggest to you that when Job worships, it means it in the truest sense of what the Bible means by worship. He glorifies and magnifies God. He acknowledges God's sovereign control, and he praises the Lord. I want you to think about what's happening. Job does the opposite of Satan's prediction. Instead of cursing God, Job praises God. And this is all well and good. This is all interesting information. But it isn't really helpful about when the crisis comes to you. Or to me. I suspect Job would never... Have acknowledge God's sovereign control and worship and praise unless Job's life was marked by an unceasing commitment to God's goodness and God's control and God's faithfulness and God's love. Because you see, the truth is, when the crisis comes, when the tragedy hits, when the diagnosis of cancer is given, when the, when the problem takes place, unless you are prepared ahead of time, to go on record that God is good and God is in control and God is faithful and God is love, you might very well be shaken. Some of you are familiar with the story of Todd Beamer, who was aboard Flight 93, which was hijacked by terrorists. Some of you know the story about how he used a cell phone to call the GTE Communications Center in Outbrook, Illinois. And he spoke with one of the supervisors, a girl named Lisa Jefferson, about the situation. The story goes, quote, His carefully guarded words were sometimes calm and sometimes anguished and sometimes mixed with tears. As he asked Ms. Jefferson to tell his wife and children that he loved them. Finally, Todd asked her to pray the Lord's Prayer with him. After that prayer, Todd's last words were firm. Are you ready, guys? Let's roll. And indeed they did. Todd and the others on board created a plan and carried out a plan To confront the hijackers and divert the plane to keep from hitting its target. And its target was most likely the White House. Thanks to Todd and his fellow passengers, the terrorists were kept from their objective. The plane crashed in the meadow in Pennsylvania, killing everyone on board. A faithful husband and father. Todd Beamer wasn't physically trained To fight terrorists. He was just a passenger on a plane. But we learn an important lesson from the experience of Todd Beamer. To respond with heroic effort and patient endurance when disaster strikes, which it will in every life, we have to be prepared beforehand. When a tragedy hits, it's too late to start training ourselves spiritually and emotionally. Instead, we have to pursue the spiritual disciplines now. You see, the truth is that if you miss chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, of a faithful man, an upright man, a man of sincerity and integrity, you can't get to verse 6 through 22. So what will you do? When the crisis comes. I'm here to tell you. That the spiritual disciplines that you cultivate right at this very moment. Loving him now. And praying to him now. And being an encouragement now. Of using your gifts and callings now. And look what it says in verse 22. In all this Job did not sin. Nor charge God with wrong. Is he deeply wounded? Is he deeply grieved? Yes. But you know what Job refuses to do? He refuses to cave into self-pity. He refuses to cave into bitterness. He refuses to blame God. And by the way, there's no mention in the text at this point of him saying, Why me? Why has this happened to me? What in the world did I do to deserve this? And I can almost hear your thoughts and protests. But at what cost? Isn't this an enormous tragedy? Isn't there some other way that God could have made his point? How are we to think about what we're reading? The text is reminding us of something that's hard for us to talk about. There's an invisible war that's taking place all around us. And the stakes are high. Because what's involved is you. And forever. What's involved is what your life will be like, not just now, but later, throughout all of eternity. Paul thought it was a spiritual battle. He talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where he says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against thrones and dominions of spiritual wickedness. The same is true in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. We're not always privy to the conversation and the deals that are being brokered in heaven. We rarely understand that there's a spiritual battle. But guess what? Like Todd Beamer, Satan will take a certain person or a certain family hostage. And he's going to try and, and fly the plane to cause the most amount of damage to the body of Christ. So, what can we be sure of? We can't see into the invisible world. We don't always understand what's going on around us. Well, again, God is in control, God uses the experiences that we experience. For our good if we will place our trust in him. It sounds cliche to quote Romans 8.28. That God is causing all things to work together for good. For those who love him. But I want you to think about it. Because Satan despises God's word. And God's promise. And will invite you to despise his word and his promise. The Bible has a lot to say about enduring and persevering in trial. In James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The world hears those words and says, That's crazy talk. You're talking crazy now. Later in James... Chapter five, he's going to appeal to this very story. In James 5:11, James writes, "Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You see, we underestimate the value of endurance. He wrote, "You've heard of the perseverance of Job, and you've seen the end intended by the Lord." And this is what it says in James. That the Lord is very compassionate and very merciful. But Satan will whisper in your ear. Ten dead children. And compassion and mercy don't seem all that believable or compelling but even in James chapter 5 verse 11 when it says indeed we count them blessed to endure you've heard of the perseverance of Job the word perseverance in James 5:11 translates the Greek word hoopamoni. it means to tolerate or suffer it means to carry an enormous load till you come to the end of the journey You have a powerful, invisible enemy. His goal is to conquer you and destroy you. He wants to ruin your testimony and destroy your life. And if that means taking away your possessions or destroying your family, he would love for that to happen. If it means tempting you in your mind or in your body, he would love to see that happen. Sorrows and tests and trials are not given on the basis of merit. In other words, you don't get more trials, more terrors, more temptations, because you're a very, very good person or a very, very not-so-good person. Good people aren't exempt from trials. And so right away we're going to be invited to try to understand the trial and then we get confused because we don't always understand the trial. And so God is wondering whether or not That, whatever conclusion you come to, is it going to be informed with a confidence that God is good and God is kind and God is merciful and God is compassionate? But here's what Job is showing us, even just for a moment. Satan had a plan and Satan's plan failed. That we don't have to become bitter, that we don't have to blame God. That nothing happens apart from God's divine permissions. And we're going to encounter trials and difficulties and losses that we never anticipated. And sometimes we think that if we love God and if we read the Bible and if we keep his commandments and we watch out for our families and we run our business honestly. That the only thing that we're going to reap is happiness and blessing and joy. And it's not necessarily true. Yet, no matter how difficult the circumstance or tragic the loss, there's an invitation. Will you love him? Will you trust him? Will you embrace bitterness? Or will you embrace? The promises of God in Christ. The Bible says that we can have true joy and peace. In Psalm 126, 5, it says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. You know what's really interesting about that passage in Psalm 126, verse 5? It doesn't condemn us when the tears are flowing. And sometimes they will flow. And then the sun comes up, and you wipe your face, and you trust the Lord. In Proverbs seventeen twenty two, it says, a joyful heart is good medicine. And so we begin our journey with Job with our limited perspective and incomplete understanding. Some of us might be tempted to say that God isn't fair. And I'm going to encourage you that that's not a good place to be. I think it's safe to say, is life unfair? Yes. Is God unfair? No, he is never unfair. Much of what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this book is going to be a constant presentation of what kind of God is God? What kinds of promises does he make? And what kinds of promises does he keep? Is he worthy of your trust? Of your confidence? And worship? Hope oh, that there's so much more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, each and every one of us will hear difficult news or have to give difficult news. Lord, we know that you are molding us and shaping us and preparing us right now that what we say and what we think and what we do and how we respond, Lord, we know that we do not have control over The weather, and we do not have control over man made circumstances. That the only thing that we have control over is whether or not we can, with simple trust, submit ourselves to you and, like Job, say, You give and take away. I've received. And what I've received is no longer here. And Heavenly Father, will it drive us to the cross of Calvary? Will it place us in the position of humility and dependence and maturation? Lord, we know that Job will touch on the theme of suffering. But even in a much bigger sense, it's going to talk to us about faith. What kind of a faith is our faith? And will it hold up under extreme circumstances? Again, Father, I pray that, Lord, you will teach us, instruct us, and grow us, and mature us in our confidence and trust in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.